Psalm 40. We are dangerously close, Lord willing. Next week we'll finish our march through the first book of Psalms. 41 chapters, 41 independent Psalms that have been collected and edited for our benefit and arranged so that we might learn from them and grow in grace. And all of them really centered around the idea of Psalm 1, which is the blessed man. What does it mean to be a blessed person? And what we've found, hopefully, through our study is to be blessed, you must be in the blessed man, Jesus Christ. And He's been shown to us over and over and over in various ways through these first 40 Psalms. And I trust you'll see them again today. I want us to uh, look at this passage. And my, my title for this is Praising God and Waiting on God in the Pit. That's Psalm 40. It's written by David. We don't have the historical setting. We don't know when it was written. We don't know what situation in specific he was dealing with in his life. But we know that he's going through a hard time. We know that he's struggling. Christian life, in many respects, is about the struggle. It's about trials. It's about suffering. And going through trials and suffering and struggles... And at the same time, relying 100% on Christ alone. In His all-sufficient ability to provide all that is needed for our life and our salvation, in Peter's terms. That's Christianity. Christianity is about going through the struggles, trials, and suffering of this life while relying Fully, 100% on the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and Him alone. That can be the definition of Christianity. Jesus promised us that this life would be filled with trials. Hold your place in Psalm 40 in way of introduction. Let's look at Jesus' words in John 15 to His disciples in the upper room discourse. The final teachings of Christ's life in the night before He's arrested, the night of His arrest prior to his arrest, in the upper room, after the celebration of the Lord's Supper, he taught his men some very important things. One of those was that they were to expect persecution. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. As its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We spend an awful lot of time, don't we, trying to avoid the hate of the world and trying to be pals with the world and trying to be accepted by the world and trying to be loved by the world. And all the while, Jesus said, They hate you, they hate me. And if they hated me, they're certainly going to hate you. Because let's face it, Jesus is the only real, 100% authentic Christian. He is Christ. Everyone else is a Christian simply because of Him. We're not a good version of it often, are we? So if they hated the perfect, how much more will they hate and ridicule us who claim Him as our Lord? And then so often we act just the opposite, don't we? And we give them food for the fire that they're already burning in their heart against God. And they say, see those Christians, they're a bunch of phonies. And they hate us. And we spend an awful lot of energy 
in the church and in our individual lives trying to get the world to like us. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now... They have seen and hated both me and my father, but the world that is written in the word that is written in their in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Skip down to verse sixteen, uh, chapter sixteen, verse one. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The temptation during suffering and trial. And persecution is to fall away, to not rely 100% wholly on Christ alone for our all-sufficient life and salvation. We fall away. He says, I'm writing these things, I'm saying these things to you so that you won't fall away. They will put you out of their synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you. That when that hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This, this morning in Bible study, we started 2 Peter chapter 3. And the whole time we talked about remembering the Word of God. The promises of God from the Old Covenant that were fulfilled in Christ. So that in our time of suffering, we're looking at the promises of God of His second coming. The Advent season is about looking at the fulfilled promises of God in Christ knowing that because He did that, He will also keep His final word, which is He's coming again, and He will judge the world, both the living and the dead, right? And because He tells us, listen, the world will hate you, we shouldn't be shocked when they hate us. Because He tells us the world will persecute you for my name's sake, and they will think they're doing a good thing, we shouldn't be surprised. But let's be honest, often we are surprised, aren't we? 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul says a very similar thing. He says, in these last days, scoffers will come. And in their, in their coming, they're only fulfilling what God has promised would happen. They're coming to make fun of and poke fun and persecute those who hold to the promises and the, and the promises that are fulfilled in Christ fully. They're coming to, to, to tear you down. Today... We're looking at an Old Testament passage, Psalm 40, and this text gives us good instruction and good examples of what we are to do during a time of suffering or when we're spending time in the pit, as it's described here, so that we can praise God and wait on God. It gives us good instruction. Psalm 40 breaks down very simply in two parts. Verses 1 through 10. In the first part, David praises God for Delivering him from the pit. And then in verses 11 through 17, David shows us how we are to praise God and wait on God in the pit. He praises God in the first half from his deliverance from the pit one time. And then in the second half, he's in the pit again. And he gives us the example, the picture of what it means to praise and wait in the pit, in the suffering. We need to define the pit, don't we? We need to say what the pit is. First, 
We must wait on the Lord when we are in the pit. What is the pit? What is it? We find it here in our text. We, we look in uh, chapter 40, and it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. John Bunyan depicts this pit on Christian's beginning of his journey, right? Christian's headed towards the celestial city, and he falls in the pit, in the slough of despond. And he's drowning there. He's sinking. Now his friend who was going along with him, who wasn't really seeking the celestial city, he was simply going with his friend Christian. As soon as he fell in the slough of despond, what did he do? He despaired, and he denied Christ And what happened immediately? He came up out of the pit. And he ran home. He turned back from the journey. He wouldn't continue on the journey. Christian struggles and struggles, doesn't he? In this pit of despond and mire. And he's sinking out until he cries unto God. And then God helps him and delivers him. What we see in in the great pilgrim's progress is simply the depiction of our passage. We often fall in the pit. The pit is life circumstances of suffering. They can be physical. They can be uh, mental. They can be relational. Suffering. Disease. Deprivation. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough clothing. We don't have a nice enough house. We don't have food, uh, I mean, uh, money to pay our bills. We're, We're short. We're suffering. It could be mental. Many, many people in this world and in this church suffer from mental struggles. They're real. They're just as real as cancer. They're just as detrimental to you. These mental struggles. And they may come from imbalances. They may come from depression, which causes a lot of these imbalances. They may come because you've been abused in some way, and so you see world in a very twisted uh, way that, that keeps you constantly seeing the bad rather than seeing the good and the positive. You know what I mean, don't you? You've been there. Mental struggle, physical struggle. It could be relational. The pit may simply be a bad marriage. Maybe a failed marriage. Maybe an adulterous spouse. Might be an alcoholic for a husband. And it drives you to this pit, to this moment of despair. And and it happens to God's people. It's not just happening to worldly people. It happens to God's people. David is definitely God's child, right? He's loved by God. He's a covenant Child of God. And he's struggling in this pit. It could be relational in the sense that you have a loved one that you love dearly. And you have shared the gospel with them time and time and time again. And yet, they have rejected it. And they've walked away. And it just crushes you internally. It just destroys your confidence. And puts you in this tailspin of despair. It could be sin. We don't need to leave that out. We're going to see that in verses, verse 12 of our chapter. David just outright says, Evil has encompassed me beyond number. My 
iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. You may be in the pit this morning because of your own sin. It might not be suffering physically or mentally. It might not be a relational problem. It might be a combination of all of the above. And it's because of your sin. Now the Bible describes sin in several ways. Number one, we see sin as falling short. That's when we see the word sin, it typically is talking about falling short of the mark. Missing the mark. Not living up to the glory of God. The famous verse is what? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's one way the Bible describes sin. That's kind of an overarching way. But the Bible speaks of sin in two other ways. One is transgression. One is transgression. That's to know what to do and refuse to do it. Or to know what you shouldn't do and do it. That's a transgression. The Bible talks about it, especially in the Old Testament, talks about it, but in the New also, of the fact that it's like the no trespassing sign that God has put up. Don't go there. And you see the sign, and the law of God written on your heart says, don't do that. And what do you do? I don't care what he says, I'm doing it. That can put you in the pit of despair. Or... There's iniquity. And that's what our verse says. Now, iniquity is the type of sin that is the condition of mankind. Classically in the Bible, when the word iniquity is used, is what you're born in. Psalm 51. I was conceived in iniquity. What does that mean? Every child that has been given life is born into this fallen world as a fallen Human. What has overcome David in verse 12 is the fact that his iniquities, his condition has overcome him. And he's in the pit. It may also include trespasses and it may also include falling short. It probably does. But at the very base, what David's saying is in my natural condition, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. And I can't humanly rescue myself. There's nothing I can do. This drives to despair. So the pit can be sin. It can be persecution. Verse 14 says, Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. He's under some type of persecution. It can be physical suffering or emotional suffering as we've described. So we, can, we understand what is the pit. It comes in all types of forms. We're not told what the pit is in this passage. I think just like we're not told what Paul's fiery dart was in his flesh that he couldn't get away from. Why? Because God wants it to be universal. If he said David's pit was his lust for Bathsheba, then all of those who don't struggle with lust in here would say, well, I'm not in the pit. I don't have that problem. I'm free. But God leaves it universal. He says, all of us find ourselves in this pit of despair. All of us. Secondly, under this first point, we want to see that while in the pit, we wait on the Lord. Verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's the way it's translated. What it, what it means, or in the Hebrew, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strengthened, intensified word. It should be translated something like, waiting, 
I waited. He's emphasizing waiting. He's not just saying, I passively sat by. He's saying something intense happened in his life. I found myself in the pit and I waited. As I was waiting, I waited. And so we need to understand, what is waiting? This whole season is about Advent. It's about waiting. What does it mean to wait biblically? Because I think of waiting, and you often think of waiting, like what we did as kids waiting for Christmas morning, right? It was passive. There was nothing we could do to get it here faster. There was nothing we could do about it, uh, you know, being, being one day sooner. We had to wait. And so what we did passively is we went to school, and every morning before we went to school, we checked off a day from the calendar. December 1st is gone. December 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, we wait. Or you think of waiting like when you wait for the doctor to come. In this season, a lot of sick people, we wait for the doctor to come. And we go to the doctor and we go into the what? What? Yes. And what do you do in the waiting room? Why you sit and read People magazine or you watch some trash on TV because that's what they've got it on, you know, Mari Povich or something, and and it's a good excuse to watch it because you're not watching it at home, so you feel self-justified. I can't help it, it's on. I can't, you know. Right? And so you just sit and you flip through the magazine and you're passive. You don't do anything. You just sit. And everything happens around you. That's how I think about waiting. Okay? Some of you have been waiting for years for your lotto ticket to come in. You're still waiting. It's a very passive thing. Nothing you can do. Right? But that's not what the Bible means, and that's definitely not what it means here when it talks about waiting. So what does it mean? Let's define that. We define the pit, now let's define waiting. Waiting on God, first of all, as I've said, is active. Look what David did. I waited patiently. While waiting, I waited for the Lord. And He inclined to me and heard my cry. First of all, while we're waiting, it's active because we're praying. We're not just sitting there saying, well, life threw me this curveball. I wasn't expecting. Now I'm suffering and nothing I can do. We're not fatalist. We don't just sit and say, well, I guess what God wanted, so I just got to go through it best I can. Try to get by. No. We, we're praying. We're crying out to God. That's what it says in verse uh, 1. That while waiting, we're, we're crying out. We're praying we, we, we look at this first verse and we see that we are to cry. Now, what does that mean? Our prayers don't often look like cries. They, they look like a lot of things, but mine don't often look like cries. So let's look at verse 13, because David tells us what he means when he says cry. 13 is a prayer. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. That's a prayer. His cry is to God because that Christ or God is His all-sufficient, the one who meets His needs, the one who saves Him, the only one. He alone can save me is what David's saying. So he's crying out to Him in verse 13 saying, make haste to help me. He's pleading with God from the pit, help me. Verse 17. 17, I don't believe... Uh, is itself a prayer, but rather a description of the condition of prayer. As for me, I am poor and needy. What does David mean? There's no resource that I hold that can help me out of this pit. 
I am poor and needy. How do we come to Christ when we cry? As beggars. If you don't come as a beggar to the throne of grace, you don't receive grace. If you come to God in your prayer life saying, Now God, I've done really well. Let me tell you what I've done, God. What I've done in this situation is, although this person has treated me wrongly, I have upheld my own integrity, God. By my strength, I have withheld my tongue and not spoken evil of this person. I've done so great. I've restrained my anger. I even still have a relationship with this person, God, because I'm a good person. If you come to God's throne of grace like that from the pit, nothing. No response. But we come crying out to God. What do we say when we cry out? Oh God, hasten to help me. Why does God need to help me? Because I'm poor and I'm needy or I'm naked or I'm, I'm undone. I have no resource within myself to get myself out of this condition that I'm in. We're a little bit like the kid that stumbled into the mud hole. And he covered himself in mud. And in that mud hole, he thought, I can get this off. You ever seen a little kid do that? I know I did when I was a kid. Right? Stained knees at church was always a bad thing with my mom. So I had my Sunday clothes on. I wasn't supposed to be playing football in the churchyard, but somehow it always happened. It's always somebody else's fault. But I thought I could fix it. I can fix it. And a lot of you are in the mud and pit of your own sin. And you think, I can go to God and I've got, I can fix this one. I can handle it. I'm going to brush myself off. I'm going to clean up. I'm going to cover up. I'm going to put my jacket on so my mom can't see my shirt. And when I get home, I'll take it off in my room. I'll shove it under my bed when she's not looking. I'll try to wash it myself. I never did that. And by the way, when you do that, bleach inside with colors doesn't work. I didn't know that part, you know. Then all of a sudden I got a faded shirt. Must, how'd that happen? I, I, I don't know. We try to cover it up, don't we? We're in the pit and we think we can fix ourselves. And so we don't cry out to God. What we do is we go to God and tell Him what we're doing to fix ourselves. And then we're mad at God because there's no help. But people who are like David who cry out in verse 1, and what do they say? Help me, I'm in need. Why do you need help? Because I can't help myself because I'm poor and I'm needy. I can't fix it, God. God is not frustrated with people who say, I can't fix myself. God is overjoyed at that thought for His children. Because then what God does is gives Himself to them and it fixes all their problems. Because He's all-sufficient. That's what it means to be a Christian. To suffer, to go through trials, to face persecution, and to wholly, 100% lean on the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And He is pleased. He is glorified when His children respond this way. So waiting involves praying. Praying involves crying. Crying is for help because we're poor and needy. That's what our passage teaches us. Thirdly, waiting on God means trusting in Him. 
It's trusting in Him. But three, verse three, He says, He put a new song in my mouth. When He brought me up out of the pit, He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. We're to praise and wait. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. It's interesting in verse three that our waiting... When it's active, it's filled with prayer, crying out to God as our all-sufficient provider and helper and Savior. What it boils over into is evangelism. Some of us are so focused on our disease, our lack of financial provision. We're so focused on our condition. And we're moaning and whining like a bunch of little pansies. And we're destroying the evangelistic opportunity to reach our neighbor. Because if we were waiting on God, actively seeking Him in prayer and crying out to Him, our lost neighbors would see it. This new song of praise in our mouth. And look what verse 3 says. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. When you put your trust in the Lord during the day of trouble, your lost neighbor will often begin to put their trust in the Lord. It's an evangelistic outreach. Verse 3 says, verse 4, talking about trusting, says that we are blessed. If you want to receive the blessing of God, you must trust in Him. Verse 4 says, blessed is the man, returning back to his first theme in, in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his what? His trust, his vouchsafe is the way the old timers used to say it. His guarantee. The Lord is my guarantee. If the Lord can't deliver, I'm not going to be delivered. If the Lord can't hear my cry, I have no hope. If the Lord can't be good on His promise, if He turns out to be a liar, I'm doomed. If Christ won't save me, I'm unsavable. That's real trust. In a real Savior that brings blessing. Real blessing. Now, I want to say something about that blessing. Maybe you've thought of it as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers do. That that blessing means temporal blessings today. Although at times, out of God's good heart and mercy, He does give temporal blessing. It always means and begins and ends with eternal blessing. The favor of God. You want the favor of God? Listen. If we can put ourselves back in the position of our children. Children, if you can think about your life right now. The greatest thing that ever happens to you in any moment of any day is for your father or your mother. To look at you and say, I accept you. I love you. I'm proud of you. As good as that temporal blessing of a father or mother who speaks to you that way is, how much greater for God to look at you and say, I accept you. You have my love. You have my grace. You have an eternal home. You're mine. I'm yours. The blessed man trusts in the Lord. Now, 
It's not part of this, the outline, but it's very important. Parents, can I just say something? We need to be talking to our children that way. We don't need to talk to them that way when they make A's on their report card or when they score the winning goal or when they accomplish some great accomplishment. That's fine to talk to them that way. But what I'm saying is we need to speak words of love and affirmation and acceptance into our children at the moment they're the most unacceptable. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. But when your kid looks at you in defiance and pushes the outer limits of your patience to express to them the love of God, to say to them, in that moment, you're mine. I love you. I accept you. Gives them the space to see God for who He is. And to build an understanding of God that goes deeper than legal actions. I earned my righteousness before God. Sometimes our children believe in an earned righteousness because we make them earn their love from us. So just like the man who places his trust in the Heavenly Father finds a blessing. As parents we need to bless our children with acceptance and, and, and love. The biggest problem I find in my parenting is I'm quick to be just and I'm slow to be gracious. And God is just the opposite. He is quick to be gracious. And He is slow and patient in His justice. He's not unjust. He's just slow. So our waiting on God involves our crying out in prayer to Him, our trusting in Him. And this, this trusting is evangelistic. It's a blessing. brings blessing. 11, verse 11 says it brings confidence in God. When we wait in this active, prayerful way, trusting in Him and Him alone, verse 11 says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. This is a man in the middle of despair saying, I know my God and He is good. Why? Because he's actively waiting on God. Fourth condition of waiting, fourth thing about waiting that we need to emphasize and our passage does is waiting on God means remembering his past help in time of need. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. David says that his waiting involves remembering God's past deeds. Psalm 104 is an example of this. The psalmist writes about the creative acts of God and he remembers those things. He says God is great. Why? Because He created the springs of water. He created the dry land. He created the sun, moon, stars. He created all the beasts that we see. Psalm 104 goes through an exaltation of God as the Creator. So in our moment of despair, we look back at a God who's able to create everything out of nothing and say, surely this God can handle this problem. 
We need to remember God in that day and we need to remember His past goodness of redemption. We need to look back into the Old Testament and see that God made a promise to Abraham that after 400 years of struggle and trial in Egypt, He would visit His people and deliver them from the land of Egypt. And did He do it? Did He do it? Absolutely. We need to remember God's past goodness. Not just to us, but to His people of all time. God delivered the people after their suffering from Egypt across the Red Sea through the desert, although they took a 40-year detour, and into the promised land. God kept His word. More than that, God kept His word to Abraham because He built of Abraham great nations, one in particular Israel, which brought forth the great promised offspring, Jesus Christ. God kept His word. And in a time of despair, when you're thinking, God doesn't love me, He's not watching out for me, He doesn't care about me, everything I have happening around me tells me I'm all alone in this world, we need to remember our Creator and our Redeemer and all of His past acts of deliverance in their lives And let's be honest, in our lives. If you've been a Christian any period of time, God has delivered you. He has delivered you not only from your sin, but He has delivered you from some of the worst situations you could have ever imagined. Some of you sitting in here can give testimony. If I just stop right now and open the floor, you could just stand and just like popcorn and say, "I, I, I was at the end of my rope in my marriage and God stepped in. He saved it. I was at the end of my rope with this doctor because I couldn't find out what was wrong with me and no one seemed to care and I thought I was going to die and then God stepped in and provided for me help in a time of dying and struggle. I was at the end of my rope, no way to provide for my family and then the mail came and there was a mysterious gift that took us till the next paycheck because God provides for His people. We've been there, haven't we? But we get in the moment of despair in that hard time and we want to look back and say, what's God ever done for me? Don't be a fool. He's done everything for us. And in our waiting, it's active because we're crying out to God and we're not only crying out to Him, we're trusting in Him. We're not only trusting in Him, we're able to remember what He's already done for us in our times of need. He has preserved us furthermore. If you've been a Christian any amount of time and you've gone through any amount of trial, you know that the only thing that got you through that moment of trial and testing was the grace of God in Christ. And when you're in the next pit, because it's coming, you've got to look back at the previous one and say, He got me through. He's faithful and He will deliver me again. Now I want to use an example, a real life example from my own life in this way. I've shared with you many times, and I don't do this to, to, to make you uh, think bad or good of me. It may, may, maybe drives both thoughts at times. But there was a time in my life, from 18 till my early 20s, when I, I was, my life was eroding away from me. My spiritual, I was a new Christian, and my spiritual life was being sucked out of me because of a love, a growing love for pornography. I was in a pit. It was was having its way. And God was gracious to bring what was in the darkness to light. And it was a very painful moment. And in the moment of my, what, what seemed terrible at the moment, 
my wife finding out, my new wife finding out I was a failure in this area was a devastating moment for me. And it was so devastating that as I sat on my couch in my apartment in Livingston, Alabama that night, and she was asleep in the next room, I thought it would be better to die right now than to have to face her tomorrow and face God on the day of judgment. And I was, I don't mean to over-dramatize it, but I'm just being honest with you. I was a hair's breadth from it. I had a pistol. I knew what I would do. I knew how to do it. And it was, it was right before me. I was in this pit of despair. And by the grace of God, I reached over and grabbed his word. And I flipped open the Psalm 40. And as I read, his word said to me, I'm faithful. Put your trust in me. And his word said, I will deliver. I didn't hear a voice. But I heard the voice with my spiritual ears from the word. And what began that night at the crossroad, true intersection of dying or living, what began that night is a journey now. From 20 until 36 of God continually preserving me by His grace. Not by my ability, nor by my legal approach and, and trappings that I put around myself to stay out of the pit. No, by His grace, He has preserved my life and extended it and given victory. Not just over that, but over many things. If you don't know him and you're not trusting him, the pistol seems like a good option. It seems like a viable option. But if you know him, his word is the only hope. Because it contains in it the promises of God to deliver us by his grace. And we can hold on to it in a day of trouble. And it will not fail us. One other quick example, not from my life, but from Dave Swinney's life. When I visited Dave in Houston, in the middle of his struggles, fighting cancer, I watched him battle, struggle, physically, but more than anything, emotionally and spiritually. Because in the pit of that suffering and that trial and the testing of his faith, there was moments where he thought, I don't know if, I have, if this is what I believe or not. But immediately followed by moments of saying, help my unbelief. And when I see him here, leading us in worship, and I watch him weekly walk with God. I say, if you wait on God and you're patient and you're actively waiting and you're crying to him and you're trusting in him and you're remembering his deliverance, he will preserve you 
He will keep you. He will not fail. And we need to think on those things in the pit. While we're praising God and waiting on His deliverance. Let me move quickly to close. Waiting on God also means following His commands. 6 and 8, verses 6 through 8, tell us that we are to obey His commands. Notice what he says. The outward conformity of the law was not what God desired. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 applies this to Jesus and says that He prepared for Him a whole body. That's the, that's the Greek translation. The Septuagint translation of this passage is what the Hebrew writer quotes. He has prepared for me a body. Here it says, He has opened my ear to hear. What does He open my ear to hear? Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your, your law is within my heart. What David's ear was open to, what Christ's body was formed for, was to show us that it is not outward obedience that God desires most, but what? Inward obedience. Obedience from the heart. Not simple conformity to a legal code, but an, an, an admission of our need for Christ and our need for God and a submission to Him from the heart to obey His Word. That's what He longs for. And in the day of struggle, that's what we should do. In our waiting, we are crying out to Him. We are trusting Him. We are remembering what He has done. And we are actively obeying Him. We're not disobeying in the day of trouble. We're obeying. It's driving us to Him, not away from Him. Next, our waiting on God means that we are running after Him. Verse 16 says, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. In our waiting, we're crying out to Him, we're trusting Him, we're waiting on Him by remembering our times of deliverance in the past, by obeying His Word, and by running hard after Jesus. What happens often in our struggles though? Do we run to Jesus? No, when we struggle, what are we tempted to do? Run to easy things that appease us for the moment. Entertainment, sex, alcohol, children, achievement, work. We run to all those things and we consume ourselves with it. And the psalmist says, don't run to those things, run to Him. And finally, waiting means rejoicing in Him. Verse 16, it's not enough to just simply run to Him, but we find in Him our all-sufficient joy. We are consumed with joy. We are taken over by the love and joy that we have for Him. We are truly Christian hedonists. God is most satisfied in us when we are, excuse me, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's what verse 16 is saying. So you run after Jesus because He's your satisfaction. And what comes out of that is a love for God that boils over into rejoicing. And that, my friends, is the meaning of waiting. I think at least it's these things. It's crying out to Him. It's trusting Him. It's remembering His work on our behalf and the behalf of the saints of all time. It's following His commands and obedience. It's running hard after Him. And it is... Rejoicing once we have Him. 
Praise God while in the pit for His past, present, and future help. And actively wait on Him in suffering and trial. That's what we could sum it all up with. Verse 3, 4, 5, 9 through 10. Tell us this. Verses 9 through 10, I think, are the central ending summation. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So we have an application, do we not? We have a clear application to this text. When God delivers us, we are to tell others. We are to be the bearers of good news. I see that in two ways. This application works in two ways. Number one, when we tell lost people of the deliverance we have found in Christ, it is the opportunity for the Word of God to be planted in their heart and bring them to salvation. Okay? So it's evangelistic. This application, if you do it, if you apply this to your own life and you say to others, listen, let me tell you what God has done in my life. When He delivers you, it's evangelistic. But secondly, it is a constant encouragement to the other believers in the community. Because you're the one in the pit today, but tomorrow your neighbor will be there. And so... As you're coming out, he may be going in. And if you're coming out and you just keep it to yourself, quiet as a church mouse, satisfied with your personal deliverance, everything's good for me, I'm okay, I'm happy. Your neighbor who's sinking into the pit may be eat up and drowned in despair. How do you not know that you won't be the faithful testimony that that person hears in their time of the pit and says, if God did it for them, He'll do it for me. Two applications. One, one application with two areas. Tell of God's deliverance from the pit to the lost and to the saved. To the lost so that they may be ultimately saved and to the saved so they might be ultimately encouraged to continue in their walk. As Psalm 40. Praise God and wait on Him actively in the pit. Because in doing that, you give yourself an opportunity, a platform for preaching the gospel to your lost neighbor and to your saved friend. So they might be saved and they might be encouraged. 